Hello, and welcome to the Harrison Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. This podcast is devoted to exploring various topics related, either directly or indirectly, to William Henry Harrison, ninth President of the United States, and his times, the antebellum period of American history. I've begun this podcast as an unconventional extension of an unconventional project. I decided a couple of years ago to undertake research on what is intended to be a full-length work on Harrison's presidency. For those unfamiliar with General Harrison, he was born on February 9, 1773, as the son of Benjamin Harrison V, a delegate to the Continental Congress and signer of the Declaration of Independence. You might be saying that you seem to remember a bearded guy by the name of Benjamin Harrison who was president. If so, then you are correct. That Benjamin Harrison is William Henry's grandson, and we'll likely discuss him on a later podcast. William grew up in Tidewater, Virginia, but as he was his father's youngest son, he had to make his own way in the world, as he was not likely to inherit much from the estate. Thus, he received his first military commission from none other than George Washington in 1791, and went on to a varied and distinguished military and civil service career. He served as governor of the Indiana Territory, a general during the War of 1812, a U.S. representative, U.S. senator, and as the U.S. minister to Columbia before being elected president in 1840. However, due to weakened health, Harrison died a month after being inaugurated on April 4th, 1841. Are the light bulbs going off in your head now? You're probably remembering that trivia question. Yes, he's that guy, the one-month president. Now, you're likely asking yourself, why on earth would anyone want to write a full-length work on a one-month presidency? That's where I come in. By education, I was an English major, and history minor, and I'm a researcher by trade. I've always been fascinated by history, especially presidential history. Harrison has, for some reason, consistently been a figure of particular interest in my readings. And the more I learn about him over the years the more fascinated I become. In most histories of the time, if Harrison's presidency is mentioned at all, it's covered in one or two sentences. He was inaugurated, he died, the end. They may mention that the election of 1840 had one of the highest voter turnouts in U.S. history, 80.2%. I know, we're nowhere close to that nowadays. But more likely to talk about how it was more slogan-driven than previous elections, with such examples as Tippecanoe and Tyler II and Martin Van Ruin, to name a few, and mark the beginning of the more media-driven campaign techniques of the modern era. However, it's rarely mentioned that during this election, we were in the midst of a war with the Seminole Indians, that there was an imminent fear that we would soon be going to war with Great Britain for a third time, and that we were in the fourth, going into fifth, year of what we would now call an economic depression. These factors were on Harrison's mind when he assumed office, and had he lived, I think there would be numerous books already written on his presidency. As it stands, they are not. The most extensive treatment I've seen to date is in Norma Lois Peterson's The Presidencies of William Henry Harrison and John Tyler, but Harrison only makes it through the first 43 pages. Even in Harrison biographies, including the most readily available, 
Freeman Cleave's Old Tippecanoe, William Henry Harrison, and his time. The presidency itself only takes up eight pages of the 343 pages of narrative. Having decided on undertaking this project, the challenge then became how to effectively communicate it. As a writer, I've always heard that you want to write on a subject that few, if any, have talked about. That's a big check on this project. However, the struggle is having to provide so much backstory to people unfamiliar with the time. I sent out a draft of the first chapter to folks a few months back, and the first bit of feedback was that it was difficult to keep up with who was who. I went into panic mode, as this was the chapter I'd intentionally worked to not introduce too many figures and specifics, as I wanted it to be more of an introduction to Harrison. Write or fail. I knew that I would need a rethink, and after a few weeks of my hemming and hawing over how to proceed, my husband suggested thinking about doing a podcast. For my part, I see this podcast as a way to share information and explore topics that may or may not make it into the larger work, as well as making the research process a bit less isolated. As we move forward, I welcome your thoughts, suggestions, and questions at Harrison Podcast all one word, at gmail.com. Now that we have that out of the way, I'd like to take the rest of our time discussing the idea of legacy and what it meant to Harrison. As mentioned, Harrison's father was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, a distinction that Harrison was naturally aware of, but he was not one to rest his laurels on others' achievements. While from all accounts able and eager even at an early age, undoubtedly, he could not have gotten his career started without his father's connections. He was sent to Philadelphia to attend medical school, with Robert Morris acting as his guardian. Morris had been one of Benjamin Harrison's contemporaries during the Revolution, and had served as the nation's superintendent of finance during the Revolutionary War. However, once funds for his schooling ran out, he asked Richard Henry Lee, a Virginia Revolutionary, to get him a commission from Washington. It was because of these compatriots of his father's that he was able to get his start. Harrison would go on to benefit from professional relationships with John Adams, James Madison, and in particular Thomas Jefferson, as each of those presidents appointed Harrison to one position after another to carry out government policy and manage military and administrative affairs in the West. As can be imagined, the West, which is what we now know as the Midwest, was a far cry from Tidewater, Virginia, or Philadelphia. It was a place of slow, sometimes treacherous travel, and even slower communication. Contrary to the log cabin campaign promotions of 1840, Harrison enjoyed the best that the West had to offer and built fine homes for his family, first in Vincennes, Indiana, then in North Bend, Ohio. However, this was not the world of large plantation homes with tobacco fields manned by enslaved people that Harrison had been born into. Settlers from both North and South would attempt to bring facets of their previous homes and stamp them onto what they saw as a virgin setting. What ultimately developed was something new and distinct from either of the geographic regions along the Atlantic. Harrison's would be a Western legacy. Over time, as he added achievements of his own to his name, Harrison became determined to defend his legacy from any who would dare to discount him. Due to the political finagling and infighting of the American command in the War of 1812, 
What would become his lifelong defense of his military record began with his letter of resignation to Secretary of War John Armstrong on the 11th of May, 1814, when he states, Having some reasons to believe that the most malicious insinuations had been made against me at Washington, it was my intention to have requested an inquiry into my conduct from the commencement of my command. Harrison was accused at various points over the years of using his influence over army purchasing to his personal benefit, of misappropriating funds while serving as governor of the Indiana Territory, of exerting undue influence in Colombian politics and opposing Colombian President Simon Bolivar during his tenure as minister to that nation, and a host of other charges that Harrison would combat by gathering information from his records, as well as through the testimony of colleagues and friends. And Harrison was always sustained as being in the right. He was always proven, as noted by Representative John W. Hurlburt during one investigation in 1817, to have, quote, in the exercise of his official duties, neglected his private concerns, to his material detriment. Harrison sought to leave his good name as a legacy to his children, but then, over time, found it necessary to adapt, to take on new challenges, in order to save his children from shame. His son Sims died in 1830 with a debt of $12,000 hanging over his head due to his having cashed a draft that bounced while serving in the land office in Vincennes. To provide some context, that figure of $12,000 is over $300,000 in 2016 currency. Despite his own personal shaky financial situation, Harrison constantly strove to protect his children and his grandchildren from financial ruin, even going so far as to petition Congress for relief, as in the case of Sims. However, this umbrella of support that he provided extended beyond his family. He would appeal to the government also for friends, in particular veterans who had served under him during the War of 1812. Though no financial genius by any means, he clearly took seriously his role as patriarch and protector for his family, his associates, and the public at large. Despite both Henry Clay and John Quincy Adams accusing Harrison of vanity at times, I believe he was driven more by an idea of legacy. He consistently harkened back not only to his personal history, but to the shared cultural history of leadership in America in his speeches. He made clear that these figures were connected with his audiences, as he referred to, quote, your Washington or your Adams, and asserts that as hard as he would work to preserve the national legacy from where it had drifted during the Jacksonian era, quote, it remains for you my fellow citizens, to arrest this course of things. The challenge and the solution could both be found in legacy for Harrison. Quote, If the Augean stable is to be cleansed, it will be necessary to go back to the principles of Jefferson. At the beginning of his inauguration speech, he said, quote, The outline of principles to govern and measures to be adopted by an administration not yet begun will soon be exchanged for immutable history, and I shall stand either exonerated by my countrymen or classed with the mass of those who promised that they might deceive and flattered with the intention to betray.
In my humble opinion, the concept of legacy is key to an understanding of Harrison. And through my readings and studies of this period of American history, while Harrison certainly applied it with an extra emphasis, I think this idea of legacy as a building block of individual character was common, at least amongst white male Americans of the time. A few examples of this. Dueling, though not as prevalent as before, was still not unheard of as a means of preserving honor. In the halls of power prior to 1840, considerable time and energy had been spent during the course of the Jackson administration to expunge from the Senate's journal a censure on Jackson and then-Secretary of the Treasury Roger Tawney for the removal of federal funds from the Bank of the United States. It took nearly three years, but when the censure was removed from the record, Jackson wrote on January 17, 1837, to Senator Thomas Hart Benton, who had led the bill through the Senate, to express his, quote, high regard and exalted opinion of your talents, virtue, and patriotism. The censure had no legal repercussions for Jackson, and there was no threat that he would be removed from office. However, it was a tarnish on his legacy, and that simply would not do for an American gentleman of the era. With that, we wrap up this episode. My intention is to put out an initial series of 10 episodes to this podcast, then determine from there how I would like to proceed. As this episode hopefully suggests, I always seek to act virtuously and give proper due to our nation's legacy, both the good aspects of it and the bad. Thus, I would welcome any feedback you have on this episode, or if you have any thoughts or suggestions for future episodes. I can be reached at harrisonpodcast at gmail.com. I hope you'll join me next time when I discuss John Tyler, his relationship to the Harrison family, and Harrison's Virginia background. Thanks again for listening.